This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate for September 29th, 2020. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling feed, or you can find us on our own dedicated RSS feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can find us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. If you would like to donate to this show, click the link in the show notes. It'll take you to Red Circle. You click the red button, and then you can either do a one-time or recurring donation. Not required at all, but certainly appreciated, and a special thank you to all past donors. I'm one of your hosts, it's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears, and I'm joined as always by Case Low. And Case, we're starting to get into the real hot season now, and just looking at like the road ahead, it was nice to have like just one show this week. We just had Kobe Sambo Hall, and we know this is going to kick off from here into a very busy October, November, December. Mike, doesn't it feel so good to have one big show out of the way, to just know that literally nine months of build from Fans in the arena in January and February to no fan shows March, April, May, June to limited capacity starting in July. It's all been building towards certain angles that were finally uh, transformed and finally evolved at Dangerous Gate. And now we've got fresh cards. We've got new unit alignments. It's just, God, it's nice to just have things be a little fresher. For as much as we've been enjoying the product, it was the same thing and the same guys and now it's a little bit fresher and it feels so good yeah and i think like that's one of the big takeaways is that we had like time where usually we would have the build from like champion gate going into dead or alive we lost all of that and they basically figuratively started the promotion with what happened after dead or alive and then revisited it but it was like so much build because remember like when they announced everyone in the cage they announced it really early in august and we were like well, what are we going to be doing for the next five weeks? And, you know, I feel like that that kind of bled into the in-ring product, but now we have two big shows ahead of us. We have one at the beginning of November, and then we have a bigger one, the uh, Kobe World 2020 rescheduling, just two weeks later. And they have a lot of work to do over the next few weeks, getting everything set up for these two huge shows. So it's really kind of invigorating to have like a show where, everything on the show felt like it was building to something at some level or another. And like we've talked about so often this year, after a really turbulent and uncomfortable 2017 and 2018, and even parts of 2019 specifically, in Kobe Sambo Hall, their home base where these shows were so dry and repetitive and 
you know, Mike, I mean, we watch everything that makes tape, and there were times where if we weren't doing audio on specific shows, because really prior to COVID, I was just, I did not have a schedule conducive to weekly recording. Now it looks like, you know, as as long as nothing drastic changes, we'll be able to continue to pump out these weekly podcasts, both the weekly update and the Dragon Gate USA series. But there'd be times where I knew if we weren't doing audio on a specific show, I would hand wave most of the Kobe Sambo Hall shows because they just weren't fun. They were such a drag, and for a Drangate show to make tape and for it to not be immediate viewing for either of us really says something about the product. And now we've hit a string this year where Kobe Sambo Hall shows are fun again. And I think this show that we're talking about, the September 26th Sambo Hall show, was a perfect example of that. A- another two-hour show that flew by, no intermission, limited capacity. And with all of that in mind, I still think it was a blast to watch. Yeah, and it was something that, like, the nice thing about this, like, with COVID and everything, I was like, this was a two-and-a-half-hour show still. Like, it's still on the lighter end, but, like, everything in it that was past, like, the introduction went at a very fast clip at least like the first 15 minutes or so like that. Uh, yeah, it just was something that it really was interesting. And we're getting a little bit of like the trademark uh, Dragon Gate weirdness into it. And we'll get into that, especially after match three, that it's all interesting and everything is fast paced, but it feels like it's not fast paced because they have to be in and out. It's just kind of like hitting a certain vibe that never really existed pre-COVID with some of these like ancillary house shows that stuff wasn't necessarily being built on. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Mike, are you ready to break down this Sambo Hall show? I know on this show, we're doing a Sambo Hall review. We've got the Fukuoka doubleheader and the Cork and Hall show on the 7th, which we'll, we'll be taping probably Thursday of next week. So you'll probably get a show on Friday. So we've got three cards to preview. And then at the end of the show, we are talking about the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame, a topic that Mike is not exactly allowed to talk about there is a social contract that mike is very afraid of breaking so i'll be pulling the weight there but we are specifically (laughs) talking about the uh, case of shima versus yoshiaki fujiwara two wrestlers who i like two wrestlers who i think have very similar cases but one of them is just better than the other so there's three topics today and mike i'm ready to break down this kobe samba hall show yeah, absolutely. It's going to be an interesting week. I'll get in. We'll, we'll get into the Hall of Fame thing about my terms and conditions. I mean, because I, I, I feel, feel like, like I missed something there. I just feel like all of a sudden Mike was under intense social pressure to not speak out. And I feel like maybe Aaron Bentley is the problem. Maybe we need to examine that relationship a little bit more. <laughs> well, we'll get into that when we get into that. So getting into the Kobe Sambo Hall show, it happened on September 26th from Kobe Sambo Hall the last night of Stormgate 2020. Attendance was 286, which was down 20. But here's another thing about this. Uh, you know what show was also happening just right across the city at the same time, Case? Was that the uh, G1 Climax event? G1 Climax and Kobe Kenning Hall with Shingo Takagi up top. So Confirmed draw Shingo Takagi, by the way. Let's confirm. Well, we're going to be eviscerating a lot of myths today and Shingo Takagi not being a draw. Let's just kick off the show yeah, by saying yeah. that this man can sell some tickets. Yeah, yeah. So if you were to tell me that if there's 20 if there's twenty people who are remaining Shingo fans want to go see that, I'd take that. So I think attendance was fine there. I mean, this is kind of where attendance has been for a lot of places outside of Cork and throughout the wrestling world. 
it was a six match show. The opener was a was an eight man tag. It was an unaffiliated tag because of people on the babyface side. We had Nuruki Doi and Dragon Kid of Team Torimon teaming up with the unaffiliated Gamma and Ho Ho Loon against the R.E.D. champion team, or almost all the champions, as they went up against the Open the Brave Gate champion Kaido Ishida and the new Open the Triangle Gate champion team of Takashi Yoshida, Diamante, and Kazuma Sakamoto. Kazuma Sakamoto got the win for R.E.D. with the true Tiger Knee subtype on Ho Ho Loon. And what were your thoughts? Well, one, I really like to finish. Sakamoto put his knee through the skull of Ho-Ho Loon and just eviscerated him with that knee strike. I think on the last show, we talked about Diamante's new gear, the Mexican flag-inspired look that he's got going now, and although it sort of clashes with the R.E.D. aesthetic, I think it looks really nice. Kaito Ishida also has new gear, and Mike, that is the gear of a future main eventer. This opener was fine. Your average Rangate opener, what really stood out to me was just the look of Kaito Ishida and how deadly this man looks right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both Kaito and Diamante have full-on honk heel gimmicks, and it looks great on them. Uh, For me, this match was a little bit down for me, even like the inconsequential openers. It felt like that a lot of people were kind of you know, having a little bit of an off night that you would hope to have a little bit of a better night here. But, I mean, it's also his match one, not very important. And, you know, I think that uh, Kazuma Sakamoto's, like, weird underhook knee is super awesome. So, I like that finish. But other than that, really not much to it. More interesting was the swan mascot that's been all over their Twitter account got attacked by R.E.D. afterwards. I found that more interesting than the match itself. It was a truly devastating attack. I mean, it was sickening, and, you know, it's uh, these anarchists that R.E.D. are need to be stopped. Crime and, crime and, you know, what was it, <laughs> crime and punishment, <laughs> law and order, whatever it is, I'm looking for it when it comes to <laughs> R.E.D. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and then we had the uh, second match, which is the match that kind of raised my eye on the show. We had the Open the Twin Gate champion team. So all of the champions for Ada were in the first two matches, which is kind of wild to think about. But it was a Twin Gate champion team of Kota Minonora and Jason Lee representing the Dragon Gate generation. Going up against the class of 20 top students of Kento Kubune and Takedo Kamai, Minonora got the win in 11 minutes and 46 seconds with the gear switch. Mike, I'll let you talk about the young boys in just a second, because I think a lot of this show is going to be one praising Kabune and Kamai and hyping up Kakuta. And I, I think there's a lot of things in the works for those three. And depending on when Fujikawa gets healthy, him as well. I think we're about to see the evolution of these guys. I mean, Taketo Kamai now has a t-shirt. He joins Kabune and Fujikawa and Kakuta in that respect. Uh, he's He's been nicknamed Turtle Chan, I believe, by Strong yes. Machine J. That's very exciting. I'll let you cover that in just a second. What I want to talk about is the Open the Twin Gate champions, Coach Minora and Jason Lee. And just how dominant they were in this match. And, and it seems like for Jason Lee's entire Dragon Gate run and for Coach Minora and his two-year career, we talked extensively last week about just how young and relatively inexperienced this guy is despite the talent and now the accolades that he has. Those are two guys that have spent their entire careers working from underneath. Both are, to an extent, undersized. Jason Lee was often underpushed prior to this Twin Gate run. Coach Minora went from essentially being a young boy and an undercard guy to a champion with a snap of the fingers. Mike, I was blown away at how good they looked, bringing the heat 
and dominating these young boys. They look so confident in that role. And as we continue to monitor the evolution of Minora, years from now, when he's a single star on the top of the card, we are going to look back at matches like this and say, wow, he he knew exactly what he was doing from a young age because this match was was good. I mean, I gave it three and a half stars. It was a great match too, but I was specifically blown away not only by the talent of, of the class of 2020, which I'll talk about in just a second, but just how comfortable Minora and Lee looked in a role that they are very rarely allowed to work. And I thought that was a huge uh, sign of things to come and a seal of approval for the current Open the Twin Gate champions. Yeah, I mean... The most interesting thing about this match was Kota Minora can pull out his vet card. Like him being able to kind of actually be in a position where he can bully people and he should be bullying people because he's the open the Twin Gate champion, which is a wild thing that he's 21 and doing this to a bunch of 19 and 20 year olds, you know? He really, he worked like he wasn't afraid. And that's yeah. a great thing to see because, I mean, you look at the current Dragon system and who's debuted after Minora? It's Dragon Daya and it's Strong Machine J and then it's the class of 2020 and Strong Machine J and Dragon Dio were both pushed out of the gates. So we're literally looking at the class of 2020 as the only people with less experience on the roster. And Minora was not timid. Minora forced himself into a dominant position in this match. And I thought it was great to see. I did not know that he would have that instinct and those capabilities at this point in his career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's something that's really exciting to see. And... It just all worked out very really well. I went the exact same for you. I went three and a half stars on this match. It was what I was hoping for in this match. And sometimes when you like you come we come on and we talk about these matches and we're like we really 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 like it three and a half stars. I think that that gives an impression that it did not achieve or achieve its potential for what this match was supposed to be. In my opinion, it was perfect. But this was a match that only had a certain ceiling and they reached it. And this is a match that's more important for the growth of three people in the in the match than it is really for a star rating, in my opinion. Now, a three-and-a-half star match, too, is a massive success. And when you see what is essentially a Southern-style tag match, I mean, Kamai took so much heat in this match and then finally made a hot tag to Kabune, who came in and once again looked like a total pro in his comeback. It was just so great to see. This is, look, this is not the show to poke holes at the star rating theory because I think that is a waste of a conversation. But, yeah, no, three and a half stars might sound like an insult, but this is a total win. And I just, I I love this match, and I am just continuously delighted at what the class of 2020 is doing. Yeah, and the thing that I've really enjoyed with this, with us, is that, or at least with the company, is that each match has had something completely different about the... uh, the class and about the people involved with this. And this one was the one that was completely based around Kamai selling. And he's really gotten to a point that it's was, we see, we saw it with Sora Fujikawa, but it was really exciting to see like how well he was at taking the heat, taking the heat and doing this, like this really great beat down. And then being able to uh, finally get out and tag Kabune and let Kabune do the hot tag. And it was like truly exceptional stuff. That's like, okay, we for a while we were like with Kamai that like his ceiling was going to be like a brave gate guy like he was going to be someone that because of his size like this it could be a problem he's someone that with like the size of the promotion I I think that it might be worth readjusting our window or his projection just because of how believable he is with the selling and seeing how the uh, 
we aren't able to really judge it other than like the crowd will verbally emote and the, the applause. And there was verbal emoting when he was getting some of these flash pins in here. Maybe he's someone that's, that's more along the level of maybe like 2015, 2016 Dia Hearts KZ is a realistic uh, projection for him now. Cause that's like what I kind of came up. Cause that's what this was really reminding me of. That is a really interesting comp that I, I wish I had a hotter take to combat that right away, but that's something that I really am going to have to sit and think about. And I think even next week, just given the amount of of matches that we're going to get from Kamai on tape within the next week and a half, I think that's something I can fully evaluate next week with that comp in mind. I still point to him as almost like a pre-Mexico Kawato in New Japan, or if we want to keep it just within the Dragon System universe, he has the potential to have the same amount of crowd investment and reaction as a Sachihoko boy or a Katoka, but at the same time, he'll, he'll be a far better wrestler. It's just a really special underdog charisma that I think Kamai specifically has, where Fujikawa is, one, the, the so good-looking, uh, so just incredibly handsome. Uh, and I think there's real like top of the line main event charisma that I think Fujikawa can sort of mold as he goes along in his career. I I don't I don't know what to do with Kamai just yet. I still he just the, the issue with Kamai, he comes across as small. Realistically, you know, he's just as tall as most of the roster, but the way he carries himself, his haircut, his gear, his in-ring he works down in size, and, and I just don't know if that's an obstacle that he'll be able, able to overcome when it comes to literally being a top-of-the-line main eventer in this promotion. But everything we've seen from him over the past nine months since his debut last December points to a successful career, someone that is going to be able to connect with the crowd. Uh, he already connects with the crowd, and it's something that I don't think he's going to lose as time goes on because he really does have that special underdog charisma that can't be taught. It is a natural thing that you either possess or that you don't. Oh, yeah, and I think that's, like, the big thing, and that kind of gets into, like, all the Turtle Chan stuff. I found out last night, both one, his nickname was Turtle Chan, and two, that's because his last name the uh, kanji or katakana spells is similar to the to the Japanese word for turtle, which is kame. So that's they're kind of playing both both kind of ways there because he's kind of he's kind of short like a turtle in a way, and it's very charming. So I'm very proud of our turtle Chan, and I'm very it's very exciting to see like this match and to see a match where he was able to really show his stuff when they've really had a lot of the matches so far where he kind of took a back seat and. Boy, does the crowd love it when he tries to break up submission holds. Like, that was, like, I I can't wait for when crowds are able to fully verbally emote and just, like, freak out when this guy is trying to save his tag team partner and getting tossed away and keep on just coming back at it. He's a snapping turtle, and it works really well. I think snapping turtle Takeda Kamai is how we need to refer to this guy from now on, because that's exactly what he is. Well done, Mike. Well yeah. done. So that's definitely worth going out of your way to watch. If I didn't mention this beforehand, the show will be up on the network through the 4th. So you you got a little bit with this, and there's a lot of stuff that you might be on the network anyways. It's worth checking out the show. There's some there's some good stuff, and there's some interesting stuff. Speaking of interesting stuff, the next match was a trios match with the... Uh, it's unaffiliated one because Jimmy joined the Dragon Gate Army team of Yosuke San, or Yosuke San Maria and Dragon Daya with Jimmy going up against Susumu Yokosuka. 
it was the scud noise there, case that got me there for a second. Uh, Masa- Masato Yoshino and Ultimo Dragon. Uh, Yokosuka got the win on Jimmy with the Yokosuka Cutter just under 15 minutes. And, oh boy, there's a lot about this match. Things happened. <laughs> Mike, Mike, what planet was Yosuke Santa Maria on in this match? Because there is a really good pro wrestling match within this match between Ultimo, Yoshino, Yokosuka, Dragon Daya, and Jimmy. And then it seemed like whatever Maria was in the match... It was just, it was literally like watching something else. There's, I'm not going to call it a great spot. It was certainly a memorable spot towards the finish of this match where Ultimo and Susumu had these Yave submissions in on Daya and Jimmy. And instead of breaking up the submissions when she has a chance, Maria goes and kisses Masato Yoshino. And it's just, you know, you accept it because it's on the undercard and it's Maria and it's established. But this was a truly weird match that I just don't know what to do with. Yeah, yeah. Like, if if there was a storyline in this match, it was Maria Horny. <laughs> like, just straight up, that's the storyline of this match. Maria Horny. Well, and- Masato Yoshino, I don't know if you noticed. Look, uh, we're going to be talking a lot about Yoshino, how much we love him, how amazing his career has been, how Yoshino exudes perfection. But if Yoshino has made one mistake in his career, it is the current hair dye that he is using. That autumn mesh, uh, soft brown hair of Yoshino. Look, it wasn't doing it for me, but it clearly was working for Yosuke Santa Maria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's... That was very much uh, a part of this. I mean, but really, um, Maria wanted Ultimo. Maria wanted the old man, and the old man was not even wanting to play with it <laughs> whatsoever. Did not want to deal with Maria shtick at all. Going like, oh, 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 the Exotico thing here. I'm not doing it. It's no good. It's no good. And he did have an answer to this after the match, which was kind of played into everything. But the match itself, uh, it was gentleman's story. Like, like, it just was such like a bizarre and just like, the first televised show after Maria was doing the best, the best like part of the character being like the, uh, we were talking about baby, uh, baby face fire, underdog fire, doing that in a brave gate shot. And now it's like, like in rapid time, like switching back to the comedy character. And that, that was the story of the match. Maria singularly exudes dragon gate booking, uh, better than anybody else, because she will go from one show being a valiant underdog babyface that everybody believes could win a championship to on the next show being in a meaningless six-man comedy match. And it's just kind of incredible the way the company has allowed themselves to do that, because I don't think most companies can get away with that, frankly. I think their booking would be greatly flawed if they attempted to do that, the one thing that I will say that I really like about the booking of this match, and it's something that plays into the upcoming cards as well, I really liked Jimmy in this match. He I looks thought great. Jimmy was so awesome, and it's so great to see him really starting to put things together in just sort of a useful undercard way. I think I have some wishful thinking for Jimmy that we can talk about when we talk about the Fukuoka shows. But, man, this is an individual great performance from Jimmy. It was really nice to see. Yeah, yeah, and he's someone that does not get as much ring time as a lot of other people on the show. But since pretty much, uh, I would say, the last month or so, like when he's been getting like solid and more and more ring time, you know, he, he always takes advantage of the position. I mean, 
a 15-minute match. This was not what he was doing before the shutdown. So they're, they're, they're displaying some, some trust into Jimmy that I like to see. And, you know, seeing Jimmy progress is something that I find very interesting. And I'm really excited to see where, like, what like we like talking about ceilings, projections here. Jimmy is, like, one where we don't know what's going to happen with him. And it's nice to see, like, the, he, they give him opportunities, especially him and Susumu were great together. And it was really exciting to see those two in the ring. And I would have liked to see a little bit more of Jimmy and Ultimo, actually, just to see, like, all right, like, Ultimo is Yaveo. I would like to see what, like, Jimmy has on that side. Like, that was, like, the one thing that was, like, the big letdown. As soon as I met, as soon as it's like, oh, Maria's going to do Maria here. What am I going to be doing? What is Jimmy going to be involved in? I was just hoping for a little bit more with him and the principal, and that didn't happen. I think it's tough to to get a grasp on what they might do with Jimmy. I think another person that the booking is a little bit hard to read right now, Mike, is that of Ryotsu Shimizu in the re-debut of him in match four. Oh, before we get into that, we're not skipping over what happened in this post-match. Oh, please, please explain. So after the match, uh, Ultimo like made a comment of basically saying, Maria, looks like that you're really looking for someone. <laughs> I don't think anyone here, I, I know I'm not interested. Yoshino and Yoshino gave like the no look. Uh, Susumu played it up and then made references about like Ryo, Saito, and Dragon Kid on the outside. And it's like, okay, that's fine. I have I have someone that, that I feel like that you might be interested in. Here is the bodyguard. And then the bodyguard came out and Maria was not interested in whatsoever. She doesn't go for bikers, I guess. <laughs> and then instead, Ultimo said, well, Bodyguard's going to be at Gate of Destiny. Uh, Dragon Kid, I guess you can have a match with him. And that was the end of the segment. One of the first things si- the first thing signed for Gate of Destiny on November 3rd is a special appearance by the Bodyguard. And listen, I know a lot of people were like, uh, really? Dragon Gate brings in weird outsiders all the time to sell tickets, and Gate of Destiny is in, is in Osaka. And when you have two huge shows, arguably two of your biggest shows a year within a two-week period, you're not going to overload, like, the... The, the smaller, earlier ones you give away stuff at Kobe World. So just see which what of like the Osaka Pro crowd that exists in 2020 or All Japan people would be interested in seeing the bodyguard. I mean, they bring Zeus. Zeus gets title shots every time All Japan's in Osaka. Why not have bodyguard out there just for this? Yes, my apologies for skipping over this. I, I for some reason, had this later on in my notes, but you're, you're exactly right. This happened after this match. Uh, you know, bodyguard comes in almost every year. I mean, he worked... Twice in Dra- I guess on one show, he worked twice in Drangate last year, has worked 2017, 2016. He was on Kobe World 2010 in a Triangle Gate match, and uh, despite his look and his current in-ring style, you might not realize it, but he is an Osaka Pro trainee. So it makes sense that he's coming in. I wish he wrestled half as good as he looked, because he really has an incredible look, but I just... I've never bought into the bodyguard thing. Uh, all Japan people, you know, you could hate all you want. That's fine. Bodyguard has largely sucked for a while. But, yeah, I, as long as he's not sticking around, I don't see, like, a miracle Sakamoto transformation with him. But if he comes in for Gate of Destiny, more power to him. I don't I don't really mind. And he's someone that... W- was he hurt? Because I don't think he's worked all year. I mean... You're asking the wrong person, first and yeah. foremost. Well, I'm looking at his cage match, and it doesn't have a match listed since December 1st of 2019. Y- you know, that lines up. That lines up. Yeah, uh, it's. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if Bodyguard comes in for a one-off, great, who cares? Uh, it's nice to have some 
form of Osaka Pro representation on the show. If he wrestles Dragon Kid, that's an interesting match. And if they throw him in an eight-man, because I don't think the Dragon Kid match is confirmed just yet. I think they allude no, to no. that. He's confirmed to appear. But yeah, there's there's no match there. So we'll see how it goes. I mean, it's the bodyguard. I don't think he's that good. But, uh, you know, he's an Osaka guy with a connection to Ultimo through All Japan. And he worked at Toriyaman. Uh, Mexico show a few years ago with Altimo. So yeah. it's not it's not something to get worked up about. I'm not a fan of it, but I understand why they're doing it. Yeah, yeah. It's hard for me to really care one way or another. If he was sticking around, I would care. But I have no inclination to believe he's going to be sticking around. So who does? By the way, Bodyguard, 52 years young. God. Yeah. I, it it, it kind of surprises you when you think he would be. He looks like he would be older, but 52. But... Let's get into the real, uh, who could be really my bodyguard, and that is Ryoto Shimizu, as he had his big raid debut against Punch Tomonaga. No contest after eight minutes and seven seconds with RED uh, interference, and we'll get into the post-match in a second, but Ryoto Shimizu, coming out, we thought that it was just going to be a name thing. We knew that he was going to use his old theme song, which is just as delightful as before. Looks like he's doing a little bit of his rookie gimmick, but at the same time, kind of being big R Shimizu in a lot of ways does not feel like that this is like the permanent thing for him. At least that was my impression. No, no, I, I, I don't mind him going back to his rookie gimmick, the sort of anime cop character for a little bit. I, I think it's almost needed, especially given the direction that it looks like they're going, which is maybe a little bit different from what I would have liked. But I, I think him, and you'll explain it further in just a second, but, you know, him, Doi, and Saito becoming a loose trio, I'm I'm okay with that. But could we not get the guy a win? Can he not beat Punch and then get beaten down by R.E.D.? Why does this need to go to a no contest? It, it It's uh, it's something where it's just kind of like, like that it, R.E.D. should have been out a lot sooner. And that's the thing. Like it, yeah, if it an was eight going minute to be no, no contest, contest is ridiculous. Either do it in four minutes or don't do it at all, or do it in attack post match. Like there's ways to do it. Uh, so yeah, RD came and laid them out, and that brought out Naruki Doi and Ryo Saito to make the save. Basically, the gist of this was that it's very clear that the Dragon Gate generation does not want any part of him. Like they remember who he is and what he's done over the last like few years. So have no deal with him, but they would like to team with him as an own independent thing. They're not leaving toward my generation, but they're forming something called our generation, which could either just be like a fun trio, or we might be seeing like the first seeds for what comes after the generation war. Is big R Shimizu, the Kyrie Irving of dragon gate, a guy that it is immensely talented, but ultimately his mind will prevent him from doing anything great in his career. I mean, it, it, he's not a book-learning type, and neither is Kyrie. So, <laughs> you, you're not... I, I, on the surface, I think so. I mean, like, he's someone that, like... It would be much easier for him to be a big star in other promotions just from his ring output, but Dragon Gate has his other things that you need to also bring alongside with you. And, you know, he's going to get a legitimate shot. But it's going to be one of those things that, I mean, now there's almost, like, five years of him being a goof that he's going to work through. And we'll see with that. And if it's one of those things that it's just that he's an absent-minded person, you know, then find someone to get a rookie whose job is to make sure that he's packed his bag each trip. Like, there's certain things you can do. Absolutely. I, it's just, I That is an interesting comp there, because I, I think 
again, I mean, if Shimizu walked into All Japan tomorrow, other than Miyohara, he'd be the most talented guy on the roster, and I think he and Miyohara could work magic together. But he's in a weird holding pattern in Dragon Gate right now, and I look forward to seeing what exactly they do with him at the end of this current storyline. Yeah, 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 yeah. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. Uh, his theme is just as charming as it was before. I was happy to see that. Like, I, I, like, oh, I yeah. love the gimmick. I think it's really fun for right now. Yeah, yeah, and he's not... And the crowd likes it. The crowd loves the gimmick. So, I mean, it's one of those things that the crowd is... Every, everyone wants uh, Ryoto Shimizu to work. It's just we have to see where it's going to end up to be and to see if he ends up being his worst enemy again. So, then that brought us to another p- p- group that's kind of having case of people being their own worst enemies, and that's the team of Benkei and Keisuke Okuda. They're supposed to be best friends case, but Okuda was not being a best friend whatsoever to Benkei in this match. Uh, Benkei did get the win over the Toriumon generation team of Suji Kondo, Ginki Horiguchi. He hit the spear on, Gen- on Ginki Horiguchi in 12 minutes and 8 seconds. And boy, Okuda's kind of been a jerk to his best friend. Okuda, I really am enjoying this slow burn that I think will be paid off at the October Cork. And when, you know, a lot of people are now accusing him of being under the RED yellow mask. I don't think it's going to be Akuda. I think that's a little bit too obvious of a story to tell, and I still think there are loose ends with Akuda and Ashida in R.E.D. that would need to be cleared up before Akuda could turn heel. So I really like what they're doing. Akuda is just—he's not only not having it with Ben K. I mean, at least here he gets to team with a former Dreamgate champion, and you know, someone that they won the match. They were a success. And he's still pissed off, which is interesting given I like the story they've told of him teaming with Punch Tamanaga and UT and these really lower level guys and and him kind of having to pull everybody's weight. And for Akuda to come in, hit his moves, hit hit the uh, go to sleep, throw off his gloves and leave because he's so annoyed at teaming with what are essentially these jobbers. I like what they're doing with Akuda. The one thing that I took away from this match that I, I don't really say this often about guys in Dragon Gate because I think the roster is so talented up and down the card, and I think that's just what makes this promotion work. But Mike, I don't think Kaisuke Yakuda and Genki Horiguchi work well together. They've had, I think, uh, one or two singles matches this year, at least one for sure, and they've you know been on opposite sides of tags consistently since Akuda came into the company. I don't like their chemistry. I don't think they work well together, and I don't know if that's something you've noticed or just something that I've picked up on. No, it, it, I think it's also one of those things that it's... I think it takes two to tango, and I think very much so it is something where it is uh, that Ginky Horiguchi is someone that took a step back from how much he was doing shows. And I think that when you don't, we only work TV shows, not even all of them. Then you're someone that doesn't get a chance to really gel and get yourself an opportunity to gel with some of these younger Ross members. I think that that's might be as much of an aspect of it than natural chemistry. You know, it's just a, a noticeable detractor in a promotion where I really think everybody works seamlessly with one another. It, those two, I think they just clash in a weird way, and it's a bummer because they're two of my favorite wrestlers. But they just, I I don't want to see them paired against each other anytime soon. I think that pairing needs a break. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, I went three and a quarter. I thought this was, I, I felt like that it really was the Kondo and Ben K stuff that made this match good, to be honest. Like, I think you're absolutely right about that. And it was like that. And then Bing, and then Okuda's character work, but it was decent. 
I'm right at three stars. It was a nice little match. I didn't I didn't have any glaring issues with it other than that I just don't like Akuda and Horiguchi in the ring at the same time. That's entirely fair. And that brings us to the main event. This was Dragon Gate versus R.E.D. six-man tag team match. All of the members of this match, with the exception of Ada, are fi- former members of Tribe Vanguard. As we had the Dragon Gate team of Yamato, KZ, and UT versus the R.E.D. team of Open the Dream Gate champion Ada, BB Hulk, and the latest turncoat, Kai, as Kai got the win on UT of 16 minutes and 55 seconds for the Meteo Impact. Boy, Kai, tremendous dickhead. Like, you could tell that this guy is thriving and being like a sleazy heel, and it worked so well. And I think this helps out R.E.D. because now he's clearly slotted as a number two and a strong number two. Early poll results, I guess, because just going off this Kobe Samba Hall show, show that Kai, as a heel, is a massive success. And I think it's going to work, and, you know, Jay on Twitter floated out the idea of him being almost a secret agent for Drangate, and maybe that's how this story concludes. And because Jay was so early in that prediction, I think that's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to change the narrative of that until we see how it finally plays out. So if that happens, great. But I really think Kai just understands this character. I think his heel work is going to be so terrific because he was kind of this absent-minded baby face that he was just kind of a goofball, but it worked. It was really charming. And now we see the inverse of that where he is this really vicious, it's almost gleefully calculated heel. And, And I just loved what he brought to this match. I think he and Yamato are going to have a great match in the future, whether it's a a hyped singles match or a tag match. And we'll talk a little bit about the future of Kai and what I want versus what I'm afraid of on the next cards we preview. But Mike, for me, the MVP of this match, when you look at KZ, who we love, who's maybe the MVP of the company this year, Yamato, who's been so good, UT, who's always consistent, we just talked about how good Kai was. But for me, the MVP of this match, the guy that made this match a four-star match, in my opinion, I thought BB Hulk was outstanding in this match. Did you pick up on the same Hulk interactions that I picked up on? Because I really thought he brought everything he had to the table in this match. So I thought Hulk was good, but obviously not as good as you are. So why do you think that Hulk did in this match difference from how he's been most this year? There's a like uh, what's the what drew you to Hulk in this? I was blown away that Hulk was able to hang with KZ towards the finishing stretch. I mean, KZ is going through his uppercut spot and all of what typically leads to one of his finishes. And Hulk is right there. He's countering these moves and he's right there with him. And just there was an intensity and a string of agility there that I thought we had lost forever from BB Hulk because he's old and he's beaten up, but I don't blame him for that. That's not a knock. That's just the reality of the situation. But when you've got Hulk crushing it against KZ, killing it with Yamato in the finishing stretch, I was just, if this is the Hulk we can get on these upcoming shows, I mean, my God, my, my tone is going to completely change going forward. I, I don't think he can work this hard consistently without his body uh, literally falling apart on him, but if we can get this sort of Hulk for big matches in the future, I will take that. Because I, I do think people are a little bit too hard on Hulk. People seem to be way more down on him than I am currently, but here I just thought he was excellent. He, he and Casey really brought it in a way that I did not think Hulk could go anymore. And that's going to be really important for R.E.D. 
and whatever comes out afterwards because for a lot of this year it's been Ada doing the heavy lifting when Kaido Shida's been in a tag team that's been something special as well but like you had Shimizu who they were clearly doing that storyline where he would finally leave RED but Hulk was kind of just kind of there so having Hulk in a position where he could step up as well really helps out this heel unit that I know that a couple weeks ago I was talking about how much I'm enjoying RED and at, at like this point RED might be my favorite side of the three-way army I did not see that happening whatsoever so I I, I see what you're saying about BB Hulk and especially with him and KZ I, I think that was really kind of interesting the fact that you had all these former tribe vanguard members on it on this team and first they were all going after kai but then it's also you have to remind yourself bb hulk was the person who was the final like pen to fall to start the generation war he was the red demon mask so having him involved in this context was great as well and you know i went three and three quarters like that's i thought it was a solid main event but i get where you're coming for from about hulk and if and if we're getting Hulk to be able to turn back the clock of 2014 a little bit, that could only mean good things. So I, I'm hopeful. Any Kobe Sambo Hall show that ends with a four-star match, I mean, by the end of this, I was, you know, clapping, standing, and pacing. You'll get into it. We got a four-star match in Kobe Sambo Hall. So I thought this main event was a complete win, and I recommend if you're listening to this while the show is still on the network, I think the main event is worth watching, and if you're pressed for time, you got to watch Minoru and Lee versus Kabuni and Kamai. But again, it's a shorter show. The whole thing was very fun. Yeah, like that's the thing. Is really the only thing that I would say just to skip after is tune in for Red beating up the Swan, and then you know, well, well when the uh, well, when the trios match up from Riz on, just you, I mean, just turn off your mind for a second. You know, I mean, like that's, that's watch Jimmy. That. Just watch Jimmy do his yeah. thing. Jimmy was so good at that match. It was just Maria. On another planet. Yeah, no. It was just a really fun show. Like, these Kobe Sambo Hall shows, like, I remember the one that, I don't know if it was August's one, but I remember, like, me saying, like, Kobe Sambo Hall might have had my Dragon Gate show of the year at that point. It's been it's been a great time with these shows, and I feel like they've done a lot of good work towards them, and I think it's been really exciting. It was the August 15th Kobe show that I thought at that time was like this. Kobe Sambo Hall is good now. I think we could say this. Like, it's actually good. And it's worth your time to go see them in their friendly confines. And the one big thing that came after this is we do have the official main event for for Gate of Destiny. KZ brought up the fact that since Ada had still had his stipulation to fulfill, Ada would have to defend the Dream Gate against a member of the Dragon Gate generation for not escaping first at Dangerous Gate. Ada kind of stormed off, and then Yagi was like, nope, that's a stipulation. That's happening. So we do have our main event. It was one of the main events that we thought probably would happen. It is KZ making his second Dreamgate challenge in less than a calendar year, and this time against Ada. They kept it simple. I'm into it. I'm all in on this match so far. Just It's KZ and Ada headlining a Big Five show, and that should excite you, given the idea that even a year ago that would have seemed impossible. But now uh, they seem to be into the idea. I'm a little concerned about... Ata as a whole, and I think that comes up on the Fukuoka shows that we're just about to talk about, but Casey and Ata, that is a rare singles match. I can't think of a a singles match. I'll quickly do a, a dive here on the cage match if I can spell Ata's name correctly under the search bar. It's not something that's been seen a whole lot. It's not only a fresh main event in terms of big five guys 
or of, of guys working a big five main event. But Mike, they had a King of Gate match in 2012 when Ata was still Ata Kobayashi. They had a um, open the Brave Gate match in 2015 where Casey was Dr. Muscle and won the Brave Gate title over Ata. And then they had a dark match five minute time limit draw in July of 2016. So we haven't seen any version of this match really since KZ became the KZ that we know today. Yeah, and that was a tournament that it was as Dr. Muscle that he won. So it'll be interesting. I'm really excited for it. And that brings us, talking about like Ada and how he's being booked, that brings us to the upcoming shows. We have a couple of, we have a homecoming show and then we have a non-televised show before we get into Fukuoka. The homecoming show is the Kihor Gucci's one in Kunamoto. Always kind of like a cool one because they made a big deal for a while that Ginky Horiguchi's mom is a cook and has a restaurant and that she'd cater the shows. Don't think that's happening this year. Really, like, looking at the matches, uh, Kota Umeda is on the show, which is kind of interesting, and you get, like, a Ginky Horiguchi main event. This is not going to be televised. I don't expect anything to come from it, but just kind of, like, cool that we're in homecoming season. And then they're going to be in Yamaguchi beforehand. Uh, nothing televised there, really. Uh, main of this main event's interesting because it's Yamato, Benke, Maria, and Daya versus Ada, BB Hulk, Kai, and Diamante. That's a fun match. And then also Kabune is teaming with Ultimo further down the card. But then we get to October 4th. It, they are back in across Fukuoka. It's a day-night doubleheader. First show is on the network at 1 p.m. Japanese Standard Time. That's midnight for us on the East Coast. A lot of stuff on these shows. And just getting into it, we are opening with... Keisuke Akuda and Punch Tomonaga versus Nuruki Doi and Don Fuji. Six-man tag, Problem Dragon, Dragon Daya, Jimmy versus Kaido Ishida, Takashi Yoshida, and Diamante. Another six-man tag, uh, Ultimo, Dragon Kid, Kondo versus Benkei, Gamma, and Hoholun. Singles match, Ryotsu Shimizu versus Yamato. Semi-main event is a Dragon Gate versus R.E.D. eight-man tag. KZ, Maria, Minonora, and Lee versus Ada, BB Hulk. Kai and Kazuma Sakamoto. And the main event this show was the one that was set up on the last month's shows. Kyushu Pro's wrestling tag team championship match as Asumu, Yokosuka, and Kiki Horiguchi defend against the Kyushu Pro team of Mentai Kid and Kodai Nozaki. Mike, what jumps out to you on this early show? I, I, there's a, a lot of fresh matchups, some unique pairings here, and obviously the main event featuring another company's tag titles is, is exciting. What do you like on this show? You, you know, taking off the Fukuoka blinders, I think that Fuji and Okuda is a fun matchup in the in the opener, so that would be interesting. Daya and Jimmy going up against Ishida and Diamante in the second match, that's a bunch of fun. Uh, match three, I mean, I think we can expect that. Shimizu versus Yamato. That is kind of the one I'm like circling, but also I realize that's a match. It's probably going to have some RED shenanigans or no contest there. Like those are like my big takeaways. And then we get to have another pretty solid eight man tag before the championship match. So those are like my takeaways from the show. Uh, what did you find interesting about it? I'm with you. I think that opener in Akuda and Fuji, I think that's going to be a lot of fun. I, I think we largely mirror thoughts. It's. It's so unlikely, and the fact that he's not even booked on the Corkin show, I think, points to this just being a, a dream more so than anything. But wouldn't it be so much fun if they really did something with Jimmy 
and gave him some sort of a win to build towards a future Brave Gate match against Ashida, where Ashida could kill him. I mean, he absolutely could yeah. murder the kid. But, you know, there's another Sambo Hall show on October 17th, and, you know, maybe they need just some sort of filler match before Ashida gets into what could be two big defenses at Gate of Destiny and Kobe World. So I hope... Uh, that, you know, between the two Fukuoka shows, Jimmy's teaming with Problem Dragon, and he's, and he's teaming with a young boy. I would hope that Jimmy doesn't take either of those falls. Whether he actually wins a match, I, I don't know if that'll happen. I don't think that'll happen. But it would be nice if that did happen. I think you're right. There's I don't think there's any chance we get a proper finish on Shimizu versus Yamato. That is a storyline-building match, and I think we'll learn a lot about the future of Shimizu from there. What I want to focus on for just a second is match five and sort of my fear about this Kai turn because I'm really into heel Kai right now and I think heel Kai is going to be a ton of fun to watch. What I'm afraid of is that Kai is going to pin Maria in this match, which that's which that's the likely finish and that should happen, and then he is going to turn his attention to Coach Minora in Jason Lee and at gate of destiny or at world or sometime soon, we're going to get Hulk and Kai versus Minora and Lee for the twin gate belts. And that red side is going to win. And yeah. while I don't think that is awful, I think it's a little bit boring because one, we talked about when Minora and Lee won the belts, how since really the beginning of 2018, the twin gate scene had largely revolved around Yamato, BB Hulk and Kai and some sort of pairing with those three guys holding the belts. And it was so nice that Minora and Lee really ushered in what, what could be a new era of the Twin Gate titles, and a match against, you know, Yokosuka and Dragon Kid was just so different. We just hadn't seen matches like that in literally two years, because it was all fresh talent in the Twin Gate scene. Dragon Kid, prior to that match, hadn't been in a Twin Gate match since 2017, when he was still the champion with Shima, that's how long it had been since Dragon Kid had challenged or been involved in a Twin Gate match. Shima was in the company when when he was going for the tag title belts, and it just seems like they're going to revert back to Kai and Hulk as a team, which, for as much as I've liked the Kai turn, you have to remember that BB Hulk turned on Yamato and Kai, not only because he did it like Ultimo Dragon and that kicked off Generational Warfare, but Kai, at least in storyline to an extent, legitimately, legitimately to an extent, broke BB Hulk's neck. And while I'm cool with them being in the same unit, if they just begin teaming willy-nilly because Dragon Gate still wants to push Hulk and they obviously have plans for Kai, I'm going to be a little bit disappointed if they just become a tag team because they'll have success as a tag team. I mean, they will they will win the Twin Gate belts if they challenge Minora and Lee for them. And just for the sake of the Twin Gate division and how fresh it feels, and for the sake of Minora and Lee, who I think are doing really exciting things, I really don't want that, but I think that's what we're going to get. I just, like... Like, I've spent the time, especially, like, of the lead-up into uh, Dangerous Gate, saying, like, this is Jason Lee's mountaintop. And I really really hope that they don't do anything to like let this guy have a run that he deserves and like that's my big worry because Kota Minoru will be fine like Kota's like that he's already succeeded to at this challenge that has happened I'm not going to do a bad WWE analogy about 
whatever achievement that they're going to do there. But he, but he knocked it out of the park here. But for Jason Lee, there is a ceiling there for him. So it's something where I don't want that to get away with that. And I, and I think that's a, that's a natural apprehension to have with that. So if, I get where you're coming from. If Menor and Lee lost their titles at Gate of Destiny or at Kobe World to Doi and Dragon Kid or Fuji and Kondo or name your Torimon team, I wouldn't care. I think that'd be a nice story. That would be the apex of Jason Lee, and it would be well done and well-timed, and I would move on. But if they lose the belts to Hulk and Kai, I'm going to be greatly disappointed because then we just go back to the same Twin Gate division that we've had, but with a new pairing of Hulk and Kai. And then we're going to get Hulk and Kai versus Yamato and Daya or Yamato and whoever. And it's just going to be the same thing. And I would like to see evolution there. That's the one thing that's been really stagnant is the story they've told with Hulk, Kai, and Yamato specifically. And I don't think going Hulk Hulk and Kai versus Yamato and Strong Machine J is the direction that we need to be headed. No. I'm with you on that, and that's something that I, if that match is made, I'm immediately going to be worried, because I feel like that, that it should raise people's eyebrows if that happens. Uh, the evening show, 5 o'clock start, 4 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, opening up with the first teaming of our generation, Maruki Doi, Saiyo, and Ryoto Shimizu versus Ginky Horiguchi, Gamma, and Ahoho Loon. I feel like everyone can tell how that one's going to go. Uh, we do have a match two, Kento Kabune versus Takeo Kamai. Get into it. And then <laughs> match three, Ultimo Dragon, Madoka Kakuta, and Jimmy versus the Open the Triangle Gate champion team of Takashi Yoshida, Kazuma Sakamoto, Diamante. Get into Ma- it. That's what I'm talking about. Get into I mean, what a Triangle Championship challenge team that could be. <laughs> <laughs> Ult- Ultimo chaperone team. He's got, a, he's got the child leash on Kakuta and Jimmy leading them to the ring. These two children about to wrestle the monsters of R.E.D. So, I one of my first... Uh, okay. Uh, uh, yeah, all right. So, one of the first ever dates I had in my life was my dad taking me and the girl I was seeing at that time to Austin, the last Austin Powers movie as a chaperone. And I'm just imagining what movies Kakuta and Jimmy <laughs> would be taken to by Ultimo Dragon. Right I now. hope it's the and last that, Austin Powers. I hope it's Goldmember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I Netflix just, and chill in the Dragon Gate Dojo, and Goldmember is queued up. Get into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... That's that's an interesting match three. Match four, Maria, Okuda, Lee, and Problem Dragon versus Yoshino, Ked, Yokosuka, and, and Kondo. Match five, KZ and Daya versus Ada and, and Ishida. Okay, that that's that has some meat to it. And then main event, we have Yamato, Benkei, and Kota Minora versus BB Hulk. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous 
brown bag of cards and yeah you can open it and look it's going to be junk you're you, you know what i mean like you know what you're probably going to get in those maybe you find that fun and sometimes i do sometimes i like just opening up cards and saying oh, hey look at some random cards or whatever but if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs and it ends up being you know almost nothing you know nothing of value not with arena club you can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. And you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying... Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off again that's arena club.com slash vow net arena club.com slash vow net for 10 percent off your first purchase on arena club and we thank them for sponsoring the voices of wrestling podcast network kai and Hio. i think everyone can tell how that match is going to go a lot more like it's interesting because like the first show has like certain things like there's aspects of matches that i'm legitimately excited about Pretty much match one through three, and then take and then making a cup of coffee for match four, and then five and six are extremely my shit. I think you're even underselling match four. I mean, look if there's if there's ever a Fukuoka show in this building under the double shot uh, schedule that they're running, if there's ever a Fukuoka show that's going to deliver, Mike. It is going to be this show. And forget the opener that sounds fun and Kabune versus Kamai, which will be excellent. I can't wait to see that. Ultimo Chaperone Trios match. I think you're underselling match four because the Torimon team is Yoshino, Dragon Kid, Susumu, and Kondo. That is an all-star team. I cannot wait for that. Even with Problem Dragon on the other side, I think they can they can work their magic there. But Mike, match five. Now look. Oh boy. Oh I'll boy. say I'll say right now, I'm pissed this is not the main event of this show. And I think it should gravely concern Ata that this is not the main event of this show. That they are still putting the Yamato Hulk Kai story ahead of the Dreamgate champion against the Dreamgate Challenger. I hate that this is the semi-main event and not the main event. But if there is ever a match that is going to deliver. On a double-shot Fukuoka card, it is Keizei and Dragon Daya versus Eita and Kaito Ishida. Get into it. I want this match to be great, and I'm going to be so bummed if it's not. I'm just... I'm, I'm not ha- telling you to pump your brakes. I'm just telling you to check your rearview mirror. That's right before a main event of more R.E.D. people. 
and we know how they are on these shows. That's the only thing I'm going to say because I look at this and I see Daya and Ishida. Daya gets a pen, finally gets a pinfall on Ishida. There's your Brave Gate match at Gate of Destiny right there. You can book it right there to just just highlight that in there. It's a very interesting match. It is definitely the one that kind of jumps off with the screen to me other than Kabuna and Kamai just testing out the acoustics of Across Fukuoka. Let's see how, <laughs> how well they can project in there. Uh, the reason why four, I'm like making a cup of coffee. Listen, you have Problem Dragon on one side. And then if we get Horny Maria, Horny Maria with like that team, and then Okuda's going to snap and get DQ'd, I could see that as a very distinct possibility. That would be interesting. That that would I would be into that. I mean, obviously, Mike Spears has a moral objection to the horniness of Yosuke Santa Maria. Last week when we were recording this show, uh, there was some horniness in the Voices of Wrestling slack going on that Mike Spears greatly disapproved of. I was an instigator uh, in the in the horniness that was happening, and, and Mike Spears was gravely disappointed in me for being horny behind his back on this very show. But, Mike, I can look past that. I can't look past Casey, Daya, Ata, and Ishida being the semi-main event. I hate that, because it's, it's Hyo in the main event. Why is he in a better match than the Dreamgate champion? They have undercut Ata during his entire run. And I warned everybody about this on the next set of shows after he won the title. I said, I'll give it time, but why is Ata not in the main event? Why is Ata always a rung lower than your Shimizu and Hulk and your Hyo or even Ashida at times? I am gravely concerned about Ata because he feels like a a second player, an upper mid-carder, a second-tier guy. And he's the Dreamgate champion. And whatever momentum he had coming out of Memorial Gate has been completely sucked out of thin air because he didn't even feel like the most important guy in the cage match. It was, you know, Hulk Yamato Kai. Then you had your Yoshino interaction there. And it's, I just don't know. I, I really do not like the way they're handling his reign because it almost reminds me of the Yamato Dreamgate run. Uh, in 2016 and 2017, which I think ended up being a really low point for the company and one of my least favorite Dreamgate runs of all time. Now, the circumstances were a little bit different, but you have to remember Yamato won the belt at Kobe World 2016. He beat Shingo in a perfect build in a near-perfect match. Top 10 match of 2016, Yamato versus Shingo from Kobe World. And then what happened right afterwards? They had Summer Adventure Tag League. So Yamato had no challengers. He went through the Tag League, did his thing, moved on. And then right after Summer Adventure Tag League, you had Akira Tozawa announce his retirement. So you kind of have a lame duck uh, main event where you've got Yamato and Tozawa for the Dream Gate. And that was, was that at Dangerous Gate 2016? Am I correct in that? Yeah, Dangerous Gate was the challenge. And then afterwards, he announced that he would be going to the WWE Villages. Exactly, and I and I think we, we had a strong inclination that Tozawa was out at that point, and then you go another month and a half to Gate of Destiny, where now it's the Tozawa retirement, and, you know, it's a non-title match, it's a six-man match that headlined that show, which, good, Tozawa deserved that send-off, but you were looking at a period from the end of July through the beginning of November... Yeah, where Yamato really had no legitimate challengers, and it was a real lame duck reign. And then I think he wrestled Doi at Final Gate. It was something weird. It was like oh, I, I it guess they're Doi doing that after being kicked out of Berserk. Okay, that's it was right. Very so, weird. So yeah, it was kind of a babyface versus babyface matchup. And then 2017 starts, and it's full on 
Yamato versus Berserk, and Cyber Kong challenging for the belt. I think I think Cyber Kong challenged for the belt twice during that reign. It was just abysmal. And mm-hmm. it just seems like Eita is mirroring that where you know, again, the circumstances were a little bit different for Yamato because Tozawa was leaving the company and they treated him with respect. But there's no reason that Aita should not be main eventing this show. And I, I'm gravely concerned about that because I think it mirrors Yamato's reign very much. No, no, no. I think that that's something. And it also kind of reminds you a little bit about Benke last year that he had like his weird thing with uh, where him and Shun were unaffiliated, but they were like sworn partners and they were doing a lot of stuff on the undercards and then he would randomly have title shots so i i i get the mitigation and there's nothing in the past history to make it do like this and it's also something where in a ways it's like get the get a title ring under his belt when you don't have to put the entire focus of the company on him so i feel like there's a little bit of that as well but i i, I totally get all of your apprehension and I mean, when we look at this Corkin card that's going to be on October 7th, Dragon Gate Network, 6.30 p.m. Japanese Standard, 5.30 a.m. Eastern. He's a part of the main event here, but he is not the person who's stirring the drink here. The straw that stirs the drink is Kaido Ishida. And it's just the main event of a show that when I'm, like, looking at it top and top, like, top to bottom, it is a show that there's a lot of things here that I'm very, very interested in, and we're going to get a chance to see this in Corkin. Just... Uh, start just running down the card. Uh, opener is uh, Kuda and Lee versus Sumi Okoska and Yuzushi Kanda. Three-way tag team match. The Mike Spears produce. Hey, it's your old pal. 2020. We get one team of Masaki, Mochizuki, and Gamma versus a second team of Don Fuji and the return of my main man, Eric and Kanicho Arai, and then Kento Kabune and Takedo Kamai. Oh, boy. Match three, Masato Yoshino and Madoka Kakuta versus Ginki Horiguchi and Kamakagatora. Match three, Torimon versus R.E.D. Ultimo, Dragon Kid, Kondo versus Kazma, uh, Diamante, and Hio. Match five, singles match in the match five position. Dragon Daya versus Takashi Yoshida. Six-man tag, uh, Our Generation, Doi, Sairio, and Shimizu versus Maria, Tomonaga, and UT. And then the main event, Yamato, KZ, Benkei and Kota Minora versus the top four people in R.E.D. as Ada, Kaido Ishida, Kai, and BB Hulk will be going against them, and we'll get the reveal of what they've called the Yellow Mask Demon. So, before we get into talking about the Mask Demon case, uh, this show has a lot to offer. I mean, really, Match 5 is the one where I'm like, okay. I mean, remember, like, Daya starting his win streak, and his big win streak kind of started at a Cork and Hall show. I believe it was against Yoshida last year so interesting match i mean of course match two is the one where like i'm this is my get into it tag match as kenicho rides back from his shoulder dislocation and what should be a really fun uh three-way tag team match and then everything else on this card looks like it could be pretty interesting this is a loaded undercard for a dragon gate cork and hall show i i'm really yeah. excited akuda and uh and yokosuka are gonna beat the crap out of each other in the opener uh, the Mike Spears produce match, I mean, look, Kabuna and Kamai have to do something because even with COVID and the altered timeline to an extent, they've still been in the company for almost a year now, and mm-hmm. they seem to be generating reactions that warrant 
not not a not a push, but interaction within the units. And I think their in ring is obviously it speaks for itself. They're excellent wrestlers at this point in their career. So with Kabuna and Kamai having a singles match on the Fukuoka show, teaming here against you know, an unaffiliated team and then a Torimon team, but Fuji always kind of has jurisdiction. He can kind of do what he wants when it comes to units. I don't know if maybe uh, there's some sort of over-generation reboot here where maybe Mochizuki and Gamma say, look, we've both fostered young guys in the past. We want to do it again. Come join us, Kabuni and Kamai. Maybe a fourth uh, unit comes into the generational warfare. I don't know what the direction is. But there has to be something with these two soon. They've got merch. They're over. They're good in the ring. It, let's do something with them, okay? And then I think Kakuta's close, but not there yet. I match three, Yoshino and Kakuta versus Horiguchi and Kagatora. That is a really exciting match, Mike. I, I think we're going to learn a lot about just what Kakuta can do in that match. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then with like someone like Kagatora... Like, it's an interesting thing because he's so much taller than basically the entire roster. So you can see a lot there. Uh, I am I think that Don Fuji should join Masaki Mochizuki and Gamma teaming these kids. I mean, do you not remember Fujiheya? I mean, he it produced, uh, produced uh, Ryoto Shimizu. We see, we've we seen how that's gone. I feel like that those are like your three granddad influences here. Oh, look, I'm, I'm all for it. They've got to do something with them. I, you know... I don't know if they're going to be under the mask. I, I don't see that happening. I would be all for it if one of those kids shows up under the mask in the main event. And even that main event, which I, I think because we put over the undercard so much, we did kind of sleep on this match. It should be excellent. It really yeah. should be good. It's the top four guys in R.E.D., and it, we're coming off of a great BB Hulk performance against Yamato, Casey, Ben K., and Minora, who are four of you know four of the guys who have delivered more than anybody in all of Drangate this year, I have no doubt that that match is going to deliver. I'm sure Kai is going to pin Hulk, or I'm sorry, Kai is going to pin Yamato, or they are going to play into the finish somehow. I think they're going to protect both Ata and KZ in this match. Once again, you've yeah. got Minora here, which leads me to think they're doing Kai and Hulk versus Minora and Lee, which is a real bummer. But the match should be excellent, and I'll take the good with the bad. You know... You're putting probably, like, if Hulk is really turning back the clock, Hulk did not have bad matches before his body broke down. So, especially in that title run. So, if this happens, I mean, those eight guys there. And then, I mean, match six, I mean, UT is going to be in for a lot that night. <laughs> I mean, could be because everyone's like Naruki Doi is Naruki Doi, but, and that's a serious wrestler. Naruki Doi is a person who based an entire Triangle Gate title run off of who do I draw on a dartboard? Who do people get from the dartboard? So that's going to be a lot of shenanigans there. And I guess now this is where we start doing our final prognostications case. Uh, who do you think will be the yellow demon mask? God, that is that is such a tough question. Just because, you know, uh, there was a thought process out there that it was going to be Casey. But now we know it's not Casey unless they're doing some really elaborate double turn, which I just, it's, it's not happening. No. Uh, is it... Daya, you know, he joins, you know, he joins RD because he can't beat them. I mean, that's unlikely, but it's a possibility. I don't think it's a Kuda. If it's a Kuda, no. it's a well-told story, but it's disappointing because I, I think they are booking this story around 
Akuda being the favorite, but it's Dragon Gate booking, and you need to be ready for the swerve, just like, you know, in the batting cages, you need to be ready for the curve. Uh, you need to be ready for the swerve and Dragon Gate booking. I don't think it's going to be Akuda. What we know, Mike, and I feel... I feel like it's fair to say this. Uh, as... Uh, my knowledge is, and, and maybe Mike has information that, that will counter this, I do not believe Shun Skywalker and Yuki Yoshioka are taking bookings in Mexico anymore. I, I don't know if they're in Japan, but I don't think they are actively seeking work in Mexico anymore. And if that yellow mask turns into a green mask and it's Shun Skywalker, we are in for one hell of a finish to 2020. All right. So this is something that I have done some work on over the last week. Originally, I wanted to talk about it on the show. was not able to do complete my talks and be able to do, do a journalism, as I like to say, case. It was a busy but week last week. We didn't get to it. We did not get to it. But now there's some stuff that I feel like that we could talk about. I did talk about this briefly with Alan Farrell when I was on Pro Wrestling Paradise last weekend. It's if you are a Pro Wrestling Torch VIP subscriber, go check it out. Alan is literally the best. You should be so. subscribing to the Torch for Alan's show. Anything else, eh, great, it's it's included, but you should be paying money for Alan's show. It's a terrific podcast. So they are the only thing that they've been listed on, and it's just it's from a promotion that it has a pretty bad reputation, and I don't have any evidence that they were actually on this show was a show this last weekend to my knowledge and talking to both people who know what's up in mexico and talking with some people in japan uh i think that they're i'm gonna use my therapy words i think that their excursion is over there is no way that they're going to be working in mlw i can see that for certain they're Dragon Gate and MLW is not dead. It's just there's nothing that can happen right now. COVID hit at the literal worst time period for the MLW-Dragon Gate relationship. It delayed a lot of things that might not ever come to fruition now. Exactly. Exactly. But there still is intent for that relationship. It's not dead. It's just there's that's at a point where nothing could happen. And it hit right when you didn't want that relationship to happen for a lot of different reasons that require that you need to go through to be able to get international wrestlers in the United States. So... They had a booking that was supposed to be on the 27th on Sunday, but that was the last booking that they have. And I was told by people who know in Mexico that it seemed like that they were wrapping up in IWRG and Arena Nakapong. I believe that their I, I believe that their excursion's over. And if I were to guess. I don't think it's Shun underneath the the yellow demon mask. I think it's Yuki Yoshioka. I'd be all in on that. I think that would be absolutely terrific if that happened. Yeah, and a way that that the year has been described to me is that they've basically decided to speed run the year. And I feel like that if you've watched this, you're like, wow, they're doing a lot of things very, very quickly. So I think that that's something that is very likely and. I think that their excursion is. I believe that their excursion is done. I think that if they're not in Mexico, I, I mean, the reason why another reason why this uh, July or this uh, September twenty seventh show was is that they were promising people on the show that weren't going to show up and they were going to be doing a 
mask match, mask and hair match with people that when I was from what my understanding was that it was not necessarily happening. So if they weren't on that show and that did not happen, the last show for Shun Skywalker was on September 20th. The last show with Yuki Yoshioka on it was September 13th. I believe that if you are a Japanese national returning to the country, you still have to do a 14-day uh, quarantine. So that quarantine would be up. If they did not, if neither of them were on the show, their, that quarantine would be up before the 7th. So I believe that it's going to... I'm of the belief that their excursion's over, and... If I were to make a guess, I think that it's going to be Shun Sky. It's going to be Yuki Yoshioka under the mask. If you've kept an eye on them in excursion, Yuki Yoshioka has a real bad haircut now. Like he couldn't find someone who had a pair of clippers in Mexico this entire time. So that, that screams scumbag to me. And Red, I mean, if they get a new scumbag in there, I think that, that bolsters the roster there. And you know, something that I was told is like I don't well, was not to expect them that whenever they come back to expect them as a team. So that's what makes me believe it's Yuki Yoshioka. Well, let's go all in on this. I'll say it's Skywalker for the the sake of being different, and you think it's Yoshioka. We think it's going to be one of the two either way, and all of the evidence that we have points to those two uh, being back in Japan sooner rather than later. Yes, yes. Those are things I could say for certain. I believe that they might already be back in Japan. So that is Cork and Hall. We've done Fukuoka. We've done Cork and Hall. We reviewed Kobe Samba Hall. Mike, are you ready to talk about the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame? Before we get into it, I'm of three beliefs before we do this. <laughs> One, uh, if we're all cool, Bentley won't find out. <laughs> the rule is, is if I talk publicly about the uh, Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame while the votes are going, that he's allowed to punch me in the neck because I do enough things on a weekly basis to aggravate Aaron Bentley that he would cherish in this. Two, this is a conversation between you and me that's private that is going to go out on the internet. I can't control that this thing's going out on the internet. So that's a loop around. That's my lawyer thing. Three, if I get punched in the neck, I can monetize it for Patreon content. Okay. Well, Mike, if it makes you feel any better, I will ask you direct questions for your input. I think that is a fair way of going about this. Sure. Over the past week, the Lucha Dorks and the Anime Avatars and the Communists came at me for not only confessing, uh, professing that Shima should have already been in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame, but that Yoshiaki Fujiwara, uh, someone that people love, who I will say up top now, and I will reiterate throughout this entire thing, someone I like is a... And you've said that before. Someone you, someone who I like is a not only a more qualified candidate than Shima, but should be in. And, and I think that argument is absolutely absurd. So, Mike, we're going to go through all three categories, and I'm going to try to get this done in 15 minutes so we can finish up right when we normally do at the 90-minute mark. I should remind everyone, before we break this down, the criteria for entry into the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame is a combination of drawing power, being a great in-ring performer, and excelling in one's field in pro wrestling, as well as having historical significance in a positive manner. Candidates should have something to offer in all three of these categories mentioned or be so outstanding in one or two that they deserve inclusion. Mike, are you clear of the understanding of what qualifies being in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame? Yes, I am. So let's look at the in-ring first of all. And quite honestly, I think what we'll find out as we go through this, Shimon Fujiwara, despite working drastically different styles, very similar careers. 
And I think their in-ring echoes that entirely because I think both of them are really strong wrestlers. If I was submitting a greatest wrestler ever ballot tomorrow, I would have these guys probably in my 30 to 40 range. Fujiwara, at the very least, is a top 50 guy of all time, and I think Shima's a little bit better than him, but I also acknowledge that I think Shima works a style that I more prefer, and on top of that, we have, you know, just Shima's entire career on tape. I mean, I understand, you know, Fujiwara's been wrestling since the 1970s. I think anything in the 21st century, I just disregard with Fujiwara because I not only do I not enjoy it, I think it's sad that he still puts himself out there and has to work these matches, but I'm not I'm not holding that against him because I think he's one of the best workers of the 1980s. I don't think you can talk about the history of, of pro wrestling in the 80s without talking about Yoshiaki Fujiwara, his run in the original UWF and UWF 2.0, and his best work, which was done in New Japan Pro Wrestling. Mike, when it comes to Shima's in-ring, what is the biggest critique against him, typically? Oh, that in a promotion that was known for great multi-man matches, more so than anyone else, Shima does not have the great singles match or singles program. Exactly. And while I, I acknowledge that criticism... I, I do disagree with it. Uh, coming off of a lunch break where I watched Shima versus Mochizuki from Final Gate 2011, I think that entirely disqualifies that argument, but I will acknowledge it and hear it because I understand that even Drangate fans, even someone uh, like Joe Lanza of the Voice of Wrestling flagship, big Drangate fan, does not typically like Drangate singles matches, and, I, and I'm okay with that. I weirdly think both Shima and Fujiwara do their best work in multi-man matches because even though Fujiwara has, say, uh, the Super Tiger match from UWF in 1984 in their entire feud, but I think their first match is the best of the bunch, it's the tag work and the multi-man work of Fujiwara that I think is is outstanding. You look at a match May 25th, 1987, uh, Maeda and Takata versus Fujiwara and Yamazaki, Mike, I think that's one of the best matches of the 80s. That is a New Japan tag match that is so heated and so intense, and Fujiwara plays his role so well, just like he does in all of the big New Japan versus UWF elimination matches, the gauntlet match. He's just terrific in all of those. Again, I think he's a a wonderful worker. Not good enough to get in on work alone into the Hall of Fame, but I also don't feel that way about Shima. If Shima brought nothing to the table in drawing or influence... I would not be voting for Shima because I I think his in-ring, while it's slightly better than Fujiwara's, and if you've listened to the show at all, uh, you know what I think of Shima's work in multi-man matches, and there's just, uh, there's literally hundreds I can name that I think are at four stars or above, but they're not work candidates. In Shima's case in particular, comes in drawing and especially in influence. Mike, uh, do you have any objections to that? I mean, I feel like you're dead on, and I think that something that, at least for Fujiwara's ring work, was that it was not that Fujiwara was doing a new style. He was kind of the banner waver of his style that did not necessarily, was not really necessarily a thing in Japan. Like, like other than, like, Billy Robinson, uh, the idea of, like, shoot style and, and the things that laid out with, like, Maeda and then Pancrates and Rings leading up to... MMA and then the idea that the shoot style basically is not ex- is it exists in Japan but it's not like a drawing thing in Japan anymore. 
Uh, I think that if anything, that Super Tiger Mask is probably one of the more important matches of its era, and I think that's what differs him from Shima, at least from a ring work standpoint, is that none of Shima's singles matches, I think it's fair to say, were like the most important one of defying the either the Dragon System style or the overall Lucharesu style. Could you that's make, a fair thing to say. Could you make the argument that the Dragon Gate six-man from Ring of Honor, Blood Generation versus Doofixer, uh, did the same amount to impact pro wrestling for the next 10 years that Fujiwara versus Super Tiger did in 1984 and dictating the next 10 years of wrestling in Japan? Are those similar matches in terms of their singular influence? Yes, but in different ways, in my opinion. Uh, I think that, and this is just my own personal thoughts, and I'm not someone that is as versed in Fujiwara as you are, I will admit. Uh, I think that Fujiwara, the thing is, you have to look at that as like the start of something that ultimately became Pride, you know, in a lot of ways, especially considering like Takeda with UWFI, and then all that, and make sure I'm not speaking on my ass about uh, Nobuhiko Takeda right here. But I believe I'm right in saying that. I I, I don't disagree. And then with the... With Doofixer versus Blood Generation, I think that that's a match that its influence is still being seen today amongst younger wrestlers, especially in younger wrestlers in the West. I think in Japan, that match has very low relevance, whereas uh, you could easily say, like, okay, the, the real start of this style in 1984 came from that, and that's something that is seen a little bit more globally, if that's fair. But I, I think So I think the thing I'll say is that the ROH six man, and I think I'm trying to be terrible and fair about it, was a lot more of a focus influence into North America and into Europe. However, I believe that, and it's still ongoing though. I believe Super Tiger was a lot more of a broad influence match with uh, with Fujiwara, but it's one that like had had its endpoint, and I would argue it's no longer as influential. Well, is that fair to say? I think that's entirely fair to say because ultimately, Blood Generation versus Doofix are a match that changed the wrestling landscape all across the world. And I think something as we move into the drawing category of this, Fujiwara, there's, I mean, there's no evidence to support him ever being a draw outside of Japan. Whereas just to focus on Shima for a second as a draw, Mike, you know this better than anyone from day one of Torimon, January 31st, 1999 onwards until he left the company on, I believe was May 7th, 2018. He was the guy he was the guy in Japan. He was the figurehead of the promotion internationally. He was the top guy in Drangate. And when he left, you have to remember when he left, Drangate attendance plummeted. Now, they were never in any DEFCON 5 situation. Nobody was panicking. But they did not sell out the June 18, or the, the June 2018 Cork and Hall show. I don't even know if they sold out in July. There was a clear dip when Shima left this promotion. And for as much as people want to talk about the idea of Drangate is a co-op and is really the brand that draws and whatever, 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 I think those are all valid points. But you have to remember, Shiba was the face of this promotion. When you thought about Drangate, whether it was in Japan or whether it was in the West, it was Shima that you thought of. And I thought any sort of debate about whether or not Shima was that big of a draw was ended the moment he left Drangate and attendance bombed. Now, if that wasn't enough 
you have to remember, this is a guy that Drangate USA was built around. And for a short while, Drangate USA was a successful independent promotion. He was what Drangate UK was based around. He drew in the second era of Michinoku Pro. Once the Kaintai guys left, the promotion was built around Crazy Max wrecking havoc, and Shima was the face of Crazy Max. And 20 years later, when he leaves Drangate, he popped a number and Wrestle 1 for a prolonged period of time. He is the only person to ever draw in Wrestle 1. That is a promotion that from day one was losing money and losing fans until Stronghearts came in. He drew in Big Japan the first time he went there, and he has been a prolonged draw in DDT since he went there. Shima draws money, whether it's with Dragon Gate, whether it's with Michinoku Pro, whether it's with his Stronghearts crew, what, what you think of OWE and what it could have been versus what it is is irrelevant. Because the fact is, in Japan, Shima has continued to be arguably the best drawing freelancer there is. There's a reason that every promotion has wanted this guy, and every time he's come into a promotion, he has drawn a number, even in promotions that never draw. Is that fair to say, Mike? Yeah, uh... The one thing that I could probably speak more on and provide a little bit more depth to is OWE. Um, the way that OWE uh, has ultimately turned out, I don't think you could apply the same thing about Fujiwara Gumi to. I think that OWE was going to fail if it had Shima as the uh, nominal wrestler head or if it was Hiroshi Tanahashi or if it was The Rock. Actually, The Rock, it might have actually worked, to be honest, <laughs> like, to be fair. The, the 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 rock but also i mean i'm not gonna get political here uh so but, but shima going to owe is not nakamura going to smackdown because when nakamura no. got in most people were like oh man it's too soon we just don't know it's the same argument yeah. that these dopes that want tetsuya naito in the hall of fame this year fucking get out of my mentions that is absurd nakamura was a borderline candidate anyway who killed whatever credibility he had when he left New Japan. If Shima would have retired in 2018, uh, it wouldn't have made a difference. He was still a Hall of Famer at that point. Right, yeah. It, it, it's something that with Shima and with Nakamura, Nakamura was someone that even back then was something that people were saying before with the WWE was, oh, he was someone that was a big show guy, but don't watch it. His his work. He's not a day in day out wrestler. He's someone that would take massive things out. Shima, I would argue, the one thing I'd say about him versus Nakamura is that we've already seen Shima's peak, and it's not going back to it. Uh, his last opportunity to have a great singles match was against Kenny Omega at uh, fight or fight for the fall in 2019, and I like that match a whole lot for whatever it's worth. Uh, it, it's something that like going back to o OWE. The reason it failed was incredibly expensive, ran through their overhead, and no one's going to get into like a actual promotion that is going to do anything in, in China unless, one, you're bought by a, a Chinese corporation, which was luckily for OWE, they had that leg up, and two, you have an insane amount of money. Like I'm talking about to a scale of my, uh, whatever Tony Khan's personal finances are, I don't think he personally his dad does i don't think he personally could fund a successful wrestling promotion in china so it's nothing that he could do about it it was kind of screwed there and then it's one chance to really have success in japan um pay your taxes that's all i'll say
there's no... If you want to hold the OWE thing against Shima, I think you're wrong, but if you want to do that, then you can't possibly, in good conscience, vote for Fujiwara, who, to look at his drawing candidacy, and I looked at this really closely over the weekend, and I should say up top, if I am missing something big from his run in the 70s, please let me know. But I don't think I am. But if it's not a blind spot because I've watched a lot of what is out there. But when it comes to the history of wrestling pre-80s, I could always use a little bit more assistance. If I am missing something from his 1970s drawing card, let me know. But I don't think I am. But if we want to look at the 80s onwards, Fujiwara was second to Akira Maeda in the first UWF. Fujiwara, an integral part of that company. An incredibly successful company for about 16 months. But he was number two to Maeda. Now, I'm not holding that against him, that's just the facts. And when he went back to New Japan in the 80s, he was a second-tier guy. The only time he headlined New Japan was the 1986 Tag League when he teamed with Anoki. Other than that, he's your upper mid-carder. He is your uh, your easy defense, something to build to the next challenger. And there's no shame in that. Again, it's Yoshiaki Fujiwara. He's magnificent. But he was not the top guy there. And once you get into the 90s, you see him become a second-tier guy in the second UWF. Because the the 89 and 90 version of UWF, it's built around Matsukatsu Funaki and Akira Maeda with Takata and I credit Ken Shamrock as kind of being the fourth drawing card in the UWF. Now, maybe you disagree, that's fine, but Shamrock is is positioned as the guy that could have been, had this promotion continued along, he would have gotten the same treatment there that he ended up getting in Pancrase. Now, the second UWF drew, but at no point is Fujiwara really placed in a position to be the top draw, with the exception of the May 4th, 1990 Budokan Hall show, where Fujiwara does sell out Budokan against uh, Fred Haymaker. Mike, are you well-versed with Fred Haymaker matches? I don't even know who that is. Exactly. He doesn't have a cage match profile. Nobody knows who he is. He's a a shoot-style import who wrestled Fujiwara at the the top of Budokan Hall. And look, it's a sellout. That's great. Fujiwara sold out Budokan Hall once. But Mike, if we're going to start handing out Hall of Fame entries to guys that have headlined Budokan Hall... You better roll out the red carpet for Go Shiozaki. You better roll it out for Togi Makabe. Naoki Sano has headlined Budokan Hall. I mean, what Bob are we Sapp. doing? Bob Sapp, I mean, what are we doing? He headlined Budokan Hall once. And it drew, but that's great, but that's not enough because that is the only time in the history of the second UWF that he was positioned as a main event guy. If you look at their Tokyo Dome show, November 1989, it's Maeda and Takata that are in the main event and the semi-main event of those shows. Fujiwara's on the fourth match on that show. He's not in any sort of position to draw. When he when he was in the Tokyo Dome on the SWS show, headlined by Hogan versus Tenru, guess what? It was Hogan and Tenru that drew that house. Fujiwara had nothing to do with it. And Mike, once PWFG came into the picture, Pro Wrestling Fujiwara Gumi, his promotion... Let's look at this for a second. He is firmly in the mid-card on a PWFG show that tanked the company. Their Tokyo Dome show, October 4th, 1992. 
it ruins the company. Whatever the company was before that Tokyo Dome show was drastically altered. At the time, I believe it was the ninth show run in the Tokyo Dome, and it was the worst drawing Tokyo Dome show up to that point. The worked attendance is about 42,000. The real attendance is about 21,000. And after that, Minoru Suzuki and Matsukatsu Funaki split from the company. And after they run the Tokyo Dome in 1992, for the rest of of their existence, they are unable to run any venue bigger than Korokin Hall in the Tokyo area, and that is after they killed Fukuoka and Hakata Star Lanes, they never really drew in Osaka, and they never drew elsewhere. It was a Tokyo-based indie company that at times couldn't even sell out Korokin Hall. September 25th, 1994, it is Fujiwara against Joe Malenko in the main event of Korokin Hall. Mike, this is 1994. And they drew 750 people to Cork and Hall. PWFG is an indie company that directly declined after Funaki and Minoru Suzuki left. And once Fujiwara was put on top, they had to rely on intergender matches, on Michinoku Pro, and off of simply surviving with Fujiwara at the top of the company. Yeah, because then everyone left to form Battle Arts and he closed. And, it just, and now he's representative as a member of Fujiwara Gumi now. And whenever he's made appearances since then. Uh, the, the thing I'll say, he has headlined show or he has put on shows that were larger than anything that Shimon has. But when, when you bring up the fact of, like, that was when the Tokyo Dome was still a very new thing. The fact that it, it had 25,000 people and then they said it had 15,000 comps. It was able to get... The gate was close to 1.5 million using uh, $92, but then everyone split. That tells me that, that one, that money was going to him, <laughs> or his, or because it was had the backing of Hachiro Tanaka, who was the person who invested and started the SWS. So this wasn't even like how Dragon Gate and Toriumon, even though that Toriumon had uh, money coming in, and then uh, Dragon Gate at least. Through Shima's tenure, it was a part of a massive portfolio that was operated by Takashi Okamura. It was always sustainable. I'm glad I'm glad you brought this up though, because I I should note I do not compare uh, eras of drawing because I think you can make the argument that John Moxley is the biggest draw in America right now. But if you compare his numbers with Hulk Hogan's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. But that that doesn't mean that John Moxley is not a draw. This, the standards have changed. Live events as a whole, COVID or not, have changed because it's just so easy to watch things on TV, to stream them, to watch them after the fact. You don't need to be in the building to watch these shows anymore. And you're right. Fujiwara has worked tons of shows bigger than anything that Shima has ever worked. But you have to remember, one, Fujiwara was never on top in New Japan. He really wasn't on top after the first UWF ever except for the failing pro wrestling Fujiwara Gumi, and Shima was the face of the number two promotion in Japan that if they were an adventurous company, if they were an aggressive company when it comes to business, don't you think they would have run, you know, Shima versus Shingo in the Dome at some point? But this is or one at of least the, at Budokan. Uh, yes, at, at something other than what they do, they are the most conservative, and I find interesting just from a, a, a business sense, uh, the most conservative wrestling company there is they run the same towns every year to the same fans that come every single year Toriumon drew from show one there's really no noticeable dips in attendance in the history of the dragon system if there was a small dip 
it would be counteracted the next month with a with a match they know could draw, or it dipped when Shima left. And those people right. weren't not going to Corkin because T Hawk and Lindeman weren't there. They were not going because Shima was nowhere on those shows. So the scales of what they drew are different. But the fact is, Shima remained a more integral draw to his promotions than Fujiwara did to his. Is that fair to say? Oh, I would say even more so because of the time period in 2007 through 2011. Shima, with the exception of a couple places, was not in the Kobe World Main Events. And if you want to see like people's like true drawing power, look at the Kobe World Main Events. Yes, numbers are worked, but you can still see a level of fluctuation that I think you can draw conclusions from. To a point of when Shima was injured in 2008 and they were originally going to have a triple threat match in the main event, that became one of the worst attended shows in company history and one of the least profitable shows in company history. So that's him having an immediate impact to his promotion, whereas other than people who immediately bought tickets to see Fujiwara, and as we've seen, people, as you brought the part about PWFG, people left. When, when Funaki, uh, Minoru Suzuki, and Shamrock left, and Pancreas formed, and later Battle Arts formed, people left. They weren't sticking around for Fujiwara. Shima, pretty much on a promotion that was brought up by himself, sold 800 to 1,000 tickets in December. I want to move to what I think is the most important part of this, which is influence, and I'll, I'll try to go in-depth while also making this as quick as possible. But look, if Shima was a bad wrestler who was a mid-card guy, who had the influence that he had, I still think there would be an argument for him being a Hall of Famer. Because reasonably, and, and Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, but with the information that we have, you can reasonably credit Shima with partially training or completely training, and we'll stick to Japan for just a second, Shingo Takagi, BB Hulk, Akira Tozawa, Yamato, KZ, T-Hawk, Eita, Ryotsu Shimizu, L. Lindemann, and Takahiro Yamamura. With the information that we have, is there anyone on that list you object to? I mean, Hulk, maybe. But it's also with how they were doing training then and how... Hulk was immediately positioned as Magnum Tokyo's guy and as his junior. But I think that that's even quibbling and that might be believing more in kayfabe than in actuality. Yeah, if there's one thing I think you and I could both uh, investigate and get real answers on the on the Dragon system, it would be the early first year and a half of the Dragon Gate Dojo. Because I think we have a lot of unanswered questions of what is storyline and, and what was actuality there. But reasonably, you can say that Shima positively influenced those guys' careers, all guys that have gone on to headline in either Drangit or in the case of Lindemann has become an integral part of DDT in the past year. And Takahiro Yamamura is a tragic story. I mean, it's just, uh, we saw the worst case scenario of his career because in, in another universe, he's drawing as a main event guy in DDT right now. Mm -hmm. Realistically, the international influence, you can credit Shima with Elevating the career of Matt Seidel, of Jack Evans, yes. of the Young yes. Bucks, of Pac, of Ricochet, of Rich Swan, and of Uha Nation, and to an extent the Rascals. But I don't. I, I let's not include them. They're not strong enough for this argument because they're still only drawing at an impact and indie level. But Seidel, Evans, Young Bucks, Pac, Ricochet, Swan, Uha Nation. Anyone on that list you object to? Pac's the only one because he's because... always a Yoshino and Dragon Kid guy. 
Right. Yeah. But I think if if you sat down with Pac, you could have a conversation, and he would say, "Oh my God, you know, Shima, you know, help me out now." Even if we remove Pac from the list, you're still looking at what seven names there of guys that were you know integral to to major league promotions at one point or another. Correct. On top of the individual trainees, Mike, we've talked about this on the podcast a lot. The Drangate House style is a style that has been aped and neutered by WWE's main roster and has been taken by AEW. And the Dragon Gate six-man as we know it, while it evolved from the Michinoku Pro six-man that obviously made waves in ECW and then the These Day shows in 1996, which was a huge tape training commodity, we recognize the Dragon Gate style of the six-man tag as the way to work six-man tags. And whether it's WWE in 2014 with the Shield and the Wyatt family, whether it's the golden era of PWG and all of those great six- and eight-man matches that Meltzer lost his mind for and, and were generally received as match-of-the-year candidates, or it's the Dragon Gate matches themselves in Ring of Honor, in Dragon Gate, in Dragon Gate USA, all across the world, including the promotion that is still the number two promotion in Japan that primarily draws off of multi-man matches for everything but their big five shows of the year. It is the Dragon Gate style that was led by Shima, fostered by Shima, and honed by Shima. That is arguably the biggest influence in wrestling of the 21st century. Is that fair to say? I mean, I think you were being a little bit charitable. Like about other influences that he's had that he did not ha- that he did not mention, to be honest. Well, what what are they? I would say that DGUK was the forerunner to the to the UK and European wrestling boom. Uh, there's and a direct like- link there. Of uh, had had Drangate UK gone on another year, we're looking at Drangate guys now wrestling in progress, and uh, you know they wrestled in WXW, but. Early days of progress, early days of Rev Pro. Once again, WXW. It's just the, the timeline ends at just the wrong point. But there is clearly, and if you talk to people in the UK, see, we just had a conversation with someone about this. A direct link between Drangate UK and the UK Indie Boom. Yeah, and then also, I would point to AEW as well. I know you mentioned a little bit the Young Bucks, but it is something that, with the exception of. Really, the stuff that I would say that Cody Rhodes has spearheaded, the stuff that's been the most highly received stuff is stuff that's directly descended from the uh, dragism style of Uchirasu. I completely agree. The I mean, to, to the extent of case, if they were to have that backyard, that, that uh, parking lot brawl in Dragon Gate, wouldn't that remind you a lot about like a Dragon Gate cage match? And I've talked to Rich Kreich about this. Like, it very much is very reminiscent of the Drangate cage match, if you look at like its style and it changing things like that, very reminiscent, in my opinion. It's, it's an analogy that I hadn't heard, but it's an analogy that I completely agree with. So, yeah, I, I, I think that, if anything, you were being a little bit cautious, and you're not even talking about the people that Shima has scouted that have gone on to success, even through slight extents, either in Dragon Gate or through the Indies or other relationships as well. The biggest weakness of Yoshiaki Fujiwara is not that he was never a headline draw the way Shima was. It's not the in-ring work, which again is phenomenal in the 80s and most of the 90s. It is his influence category because Fujiwara, rightfully so, gets 
all of the credit for training Minoru Suzuki and Matsukatsu Funaki, and he should, and there's no argument against that. The issue is that, with the exception of Minoru Suzuki, who now works a completely different style in New Japan, there are no traces of original shoot style anywhere in wrestling that draw. Modern wrestling takes more from 2005 UFC than it does UWF. There's no traces of shoot style mattering or drawing in the world of professional wrestling. You can say it influenced Pride. Great. But I don't care. This is the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. I, I don't care about Pride. If he influenced Pride, that's great. Put him in the MMA Hall of Fame. Okay? He and Tamora and Sakuraba can have fun over there. But when we're talking pro wrestling... Timothy Thatcher's Evolve Reign sucked. The rain burned fans out. They drew their biggest houses while Thatcher was champion, but not while Thatcher was on top. There was a, a vocal disconnect between Thatcher and the Evolve fan base towards the end of that run. Ring of Honor is using the pure title, which you could maybe credit the lineage of UWF to the ROH pure title. They're using that as a gimmick. It's on their TV show. It's not headlining. It's just, it's a gimmick. It's nothing notable in the landscape of pro wrestling. New Japan distanced themselves from shoot-style wrestling. They call themselves strong style as a marketing tool, as a gimmick. But even Shibata wasn't working a true shoot style. He was working the New Japan house style, but he kicked guys harder and wore black tights, so people lost their minds. There are no traces of pure shoot style drawing anywhere in the world. If you're hanging your hat on hard hit as the influence of Fujiwara, you need to go home. That's not it. That's not happening. Mike, you can make the argument that the British rounds world of sports style has made a bigger impact on current pro wrestling than original shoot style has. And that is my issue with Fujiwara. Mike, he pioneered a dead style. No one works that style anymore in draws. I don't understand it. Shima has influenced this century of pro wrestling. Fujiwara did not. The style that he, that he pioneered passed him by, evolved into something greater. People are better than him at that style, and they have a bigger influence and drew better than he did. There's no argument for Fujiwara as an influence outside of training Minoru Suzuki. And I think that, like, to put a bow on it, uh, I think that Fujiwara is a Hall of Famer. I think that, that it's something that you, this is not a you choose A, so you cannot choose B situation. I view Fujiwara the same way as Grand Hamada, who should also be in the Hall of Fame. And Hamada should be in tomorrow, yes. Yeah, but it's it, w w just to illustrate... Uh, the idea of the style not being a draw. Probably the closest thing that's happening to having that draw continue is in the United States with either Bloodsport or with Paradigm Pro Wrestling adopting UWFI rules and getting them terribly wrong. Uh, <laughs> to the extent that Andy Labar has been like, I should really love this, but they're making this, they're not doing this correctly, they're just using this as a gimmick, and Bloodsport is run by one of the most just. Josh Burnett I, infuriates me. But, but okay, so if Bloodsport Bloodsport runs what so twice tickets. a year, and not even tickets, tickets, but they they run what twice a year, three times a year. Yeah, Mike. If I mean, even if they follow the Drangit USA model of booking, you know, double shots every other month, it would oh that'll go down fast. It would cease to draw within a year. There's no there's no legs behind it. There's only so much you can do. I love Bloodsport once a year. I look forward to those shows. I think it's awesome. Moxley's working it. But if Bloodsport ran 
twice as many shows as they're currently running, you would see the luster wear off immediately. Right. Yeah. No, I'm totally with you on that. And and again, I don't think this is a if one, not the other conversation. And I think that both of them, if, if I were to have a ballot or if I chose to disclose my ballot, if I were to have a ballot, let's be frank here. <laughs> I, I, I think both of them would be on my ballot, but it's not an if one or another thing. I, I can't in good conscience vote for Fujiwara. I don't see the case there. Whereas Shima, I think, should have gotten in years ago, and it annoys me that he's not in there. Mike, to wrap up, I'm going to throw you three names, and you can quick yes or no if you had a ballot and they were on the ballot. Hall of Famer, yes or no. Are you ready? Okay. Masaki Mochizuki. Yes. Shingo Takagi. Not yet. Masato Yoshino. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. I will leave it at that. That is all. That is as, as much Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame talk as I think you're allowed. I'm afraid Aaron Bentley is going to pop into the Skype call at any moment and kick some virtual ass. <laughs> I don't want that to happen. I like you, Mike. We still have another podcast to do today, so I don't want you to be injured. I think. I think we're gonna leave it there. I can, yeah. in good conscience, vote for Fujiwara if I had a ballot, and I think Shima should have been in years ago. That is fair. That is fair. And that's going to do it for this episode. Open the voice gate. We'll be back sometime next week with the Corkin with Corkins, as we always try to do. We try to figure out a time that we could record it and get it out in a timely manner. So we'll be back sometime next week. But for KSM Mike, and we'll catch you next time. Open the voice gate. Take care.